Coach Edelstein here, your celeb expert and your celeb savant. Celeb Savant is a weekly entertainment show. We have long-form career retrospective type interviews with celebrities, singers, actors, and industry experts. What an eclectic career. Tony Moore is an English singer-songwriter, musician, radio presenter, music promoter, and entrepreneur. His career has spanned decades. He was a member of the band Iron Maiden and also as keyboard player for the band The Cutting Crew. In 1997, he founded the Cashmere Club to showcase live music in London. The artists that have appeared on his stage are as numerous from Katie Tunstall, Paolo Nutini, through to Ed Sheeran. Tony continues to release music as a solo artist. On the next episode of Celeb Savant, we'll be finding out more about Tony's career. So up next on the podcast, we've got Tony Moore. Where do we find you in the world? What's happening in your life? And how are you doing? <laughs> Those are three great questions. Uh, the first one's easy. Uh, the second one's interesting. And uh, the third one will take a bit of time. But I am currently in London, uh, Clapham Junction, actually. And uh, I am fine and fabulous. My next few months is pretty insane with things that I'm working on. So I, I don't have a lot of time to not be fabulous right i have to be yeah. fabulous all the time <laughs> absolutely why not <laughs> um and i'm i'm in the midst of working on my m- new major music project which is a show called awake which uh, i'm sure all will be revealed as we continue to talk it's an interesting diverse musical entertainment world journey so let's rewind <laughs> And do the hybrid Tony Moore musical entertainment journey. So take us away. Okay. So I was born in Bristol, which is a, a small town in the west, southwest of England. My dad was a classical pianist and a tenor, and my mum was a ballet dancer. So it was a very theatrical house I lived in. I remember my mum would always kind of dance into, into the room and out of the room. It, <laughs> it was... <laughs> She would do little pirouettes in the middle of the room. My dad was playing the piano all the time. And and so I grew up listening to all the, the greats, Ratman and Off and Chopin and stuff. And he was an amazing tenor, singing all the great Neapolitan love songs. Um, and they sent me to piano lessons. And, I, and for me, that was a disaster. I, I realized I had no aptitude to read music. It was like another language that I just, I couldn't get my head around. Mm-hmm. So I started at a very young age, just composing music. Although I wouldn't call it composing, it was calling making it up. I really, I guess. And, and to me, that was just the easy way out because that way no one could argue that I'd done the wrong thing or played the wrong chord because I could just say, well, I wrote it that way. Um, <laughs> and as I grew older, I, I kind of started about 11 or 12 doing that. And then as I got a little bit older, I did same thing that I, I guess millions of musicians around the world have done, which is you meet some friends at school, you form a band, you start learning some songs. And I was also writing songs for the band and had a great time. You know, we would, we were doing great little gigs and it was, <clears throat> this was the seventies. Um, <laughs> and it was, a, it, it was a different age then. Everything was far more relaxed. And, you know, we were, we were playing in licensed venues when we were a bit too young, but we were having a great time. However, when it came to me leaving school around about 17, I decided to move to London because that's, you know, that's where the streets are paved with gold, apparently. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's certainly where the industry is based, you know, wherever, whatever country you're in, there's always one major city that holds the, the entertainment, um, reins of control. If you, or maybe two, if it's big, if you're in America, it's LA or New York. Yeah. 
arguably maybe now Nashville and, and Atlanta, but <clears throat> there's only a few places where you can go where there's opportunity. So in England, it was obviously London. So I answered an advert in a newspaper. It's a music newspaper called The Melody Maker. Yes. And it's for a band looking for a keyboard player with synth. And <clears throat> I've been doing a lot of work as a, as a teenager to, to make money to buy gear. And I had a little Korg synth and a, and a Wurlitzer piano. And so I answered this advert and I put all the gear in my car and drove to London and did the audition. And at the end of the audition, the band said to me, would you like to join? And I went, absolutely. This was my chance to move to London and begin my career. So I packed, packed everything away, moved to London, and we started writing and rehearsing and working really hard for probably about four or five months at least um, before we did one really important gig. And for me, at the end of the gig, I, I guess it just didn't feel like a good fit as a keyboard player in, in the band and, and what was happening. And although I loved the band and the energy it just didn't seem to fit. And I think it was, you know, we, we mutually agreed and I moved on. That band was Iron Maiden, of course, okay. who, who've gone on, gone on to be quite successful, apparently. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, so just suppose pause, why, why didn't it feel right? Well, if you think, if you think about Iron Maiden now, and yes. and the format of they actually have three guitarists now, but but the kind of the classic lineup was two guitarists, harmony lead guitar. It wasn't until maybe the was it third, maybe fourth album that some keyboards would appear in the background, but never a prominent feature of the music. Okay. Um. So I I think we both felt that that keyboard in the band wasn't working, and, and it took a gig to play it to go. Oh, this for me, there's something wasn't quite right, yeah, yeah. and I think. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I moved on. Of course, the band then kind of changed lineups a little bit a few times over the next year or so. Um, got a different singer, got another guitarist. And then eventually, uh, when Paul Diano joined the band, they got a deal with EMI and then they started working and the rest is history. They've just yeah. done one of the biggest tours ever last year and they're about to go out again this summer. So they absolutely knew what they were doing. And Steve Harris, the bass player has, you know, he, he's quite the visionary, right? Even when I first met him, and I was just 18 in London. He, he knew that this band could be the cutting edge of new British rock, could be as big as, um, could have a stage show like Genesis yeah. and could be one of the biggest bands in the world. And, and, and I believed him, right? I, it wasn't, I didn't believe in the band. It's just that it, yeah. it didn't feel like the right fit for me. I've also had, you know, a, that spring off point took me into a whole other journey. So I, I went through a lot of different bands before forming my own band in the early 80s. We got a deal with a, a label called Career Records, and we did an album at Abbey Road. And I thought, wow, this is it. And there was still people there from the 70s and the 60s who, who'd worked with the Beatles, right? Yes, and yeah. it was just a magical place to be. We'd sneak off at night and wander around the building and, you know, and look at the roof where John apparently taken a trip and was out on the roof and we looked at found the boiler room where apparently some some jazz cigarettes were smoked by the Beatles behind the boilers and <laughs> it was just it was a it was just a sense of being part of an iconic legendary history of music. So I thought this is it. I've arrived. I'm recording Abbey Road. Sadly, I think it happened at the point where the label was not continuing properly and the funding wasn't there for the promotion however we released a christmas single in 1983 that accidentally got bought by some dutch radio djs they took it to uh, holland started playing it and it became a christmas hit in 1983-84 on the tip chart which is the the dutch airplay chart so you couldn't buy it but every station was playing it so we went over there and did loads of tv and we thought oh we're so close but 
unfortunately when the Christmas thing passed and people weren't interested in that yeah. song anymore because the moment it happened and they couldn't buy it, everything kind of fizzled out. Yeah. Then kind of mid to, to uh, later eighties, I joined a band called Cutting Crew and we eventually then went on to have a massive hit around the world and in America with a song called I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you and your um, viewers will know very well. And that was a, an incredible period. We were touring with the Bangles, yes. Starship, Huey Lewis, yes. and, and doing amazing gigs. We did a, we did a stadium in Taiwan as the first Western band to play for a, a Chinese audience or a Taiwanese audience that were allowed to stand up and dance. I'm not because, fine. because up until that point, the whole Chiang Kai-shek uh, cultural revolution of destroying all art and music and dancing and singing being banned had been relaxed. And this was, the, it, it was incredible. It was about 60,000 people in the basketball um, stadium and people outside a riot of people trying to get in. It was, it was quite an astonishing time to be a part of. I just find it bizarre that, you know, a government or, uh, can say you're not allowed to dance. It's like, how the, it's just, it just blows my mind <laughs> that well, such control can be imposed, you know? Well, if you just think about what happened in 2020, the entire world's governments told people that they could not go to clubs. They yes. could not dance or sing. They had to socially distance. Yeah. That, that's it, do you know what I mean? And we it's all like, listened. Yeah. <laughs> we all listened. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not making any, uh, any comment one way or the other, except yes. to say for me, that was a very impactful thing because having gone to Taiwan and seen the joy of people just allowed to be human yes. and to enjoy life with freedom. And then to be plunged into what happened in 2020, I suddenly realized what a, what we take for granted in our freedom sometimes mm-hmm. is sometimes the most basic thing. Like you cannot sing because your spit might cause some problem or you cannot dance because you might be too close to somebody. Oh, yes. that was scary times. Anyway, back on your journey. So, um, <laughs> that, that takes me into the early nineties. I had a, yes. had a few more little solo deals that didn't quite work. And then I started working with a girl called Marie Claire Dubaldo, who was from Argentina. And, uh, I co-wrote and co-produced maybe a quarter of her album. But on the album, she had some songs that were massive hits, including a song called The Rhythm is Magic that was number one in Italy for most of the summer of 1994. And through 94, 95 and a bit of 96, we were touring all around everywhere from Japan to Russia to Latin America. But towards the end of the 90s, uh, her deal had finished. And I was in London frustrated that I have a studio and I make and write music, but I had nowhere to play my songs mm-hmm. where people would listen. And there's a club in Nashville called the, uh, the Bluebird Cafe, which is very famous for being a place where, uh, original songwriters can sing their songs, especially people who'd written songs for very big artists, but you didn't know who the writer was. They would come and do an acoustic performance. Yes. Um, and everybody would listen. And there was, you know, it was a very supportive environment for music. And that didn't really exist in London um, at that level. So I started a night based on that kind of concept called the Cashmere Club once a week, just for me, my friends. It moved around a little bit, but eventually yeah. it was in the basement of a pub in Marylebone. I had some friends in the music industry who would sponsor by giving me great speakers and a mixing desk and mics. And I would curate the nights. I suddenly discovered there was an audience of people who loved this kind of intimate connection with songwriters. So we were doing two nights a week within a couple of months. Over six years, it grew to six nights a week. And I remember during that period, I had the very first London shows with Damien Rice, 
that blew our minds and made us cry at the same time. Mm. Uh, we had people like Katie Tunstall and Imogen Heap um, uh, starting their careers with us. And also Cheryl Crow came one night because her drummer, Jeremy Stacy, was going out with a girl called Narina, who did a, a show to launch an album. And she said, I love this place. Can I do a gig? So we, we arranged for her to come <laughs> and do a secret set that Saturday for at 8.30 for 45 minutes. And no one had a clue who she was until I introduced her. Even the people who were watching the sound checks, because people were in at that point, yeah. said, to, said to me later, they thought she was an Alanis Morissette lookalike doing Sheryl Crow covers. They had no idea it was Sheryl Crow until I introduced her, right? So it was a magical place. And, and it hit a zeitgeist moment where the, the kind of the attention in the UK was moving from Stone Roses, Oasis, mm. Holt Blur, more to singer-songwriters. And out of that, suddenly this whole acoustic movement, I'm not saying that I'm responsible for it, but but I was at a point where there was a, a, a change of mood, right? And and I was kind of part of the front of that wave that was coming. So that was a really exciting thing to do. And then in 2003, I took, we had to leave the venue and I took the concept to a venue called the Bedford in Ballam, where I've been doing it for 20 years. So on top of writing, producing, touring and everything else, I've also been helping new and emerging artists find a stage. And through the Bedford, Paolo Nutini, when he was 17, arrived, James Morrison, James Bay, Ed Sheeran. His first album is called Live at the Bedford, which you can still buy now, mm. uh, which was his first record. We we gave him the place to, and he filled it on his own. And uh, Georgia Smith's first gig there. My passion is uh, music and my facility to be able to create an environment for young artists to be seen and heard at their best is something that I feel I have a duty to do and have done for a long time. So that brings us almost to now with very uh, big gaps in the middle. But at the beginning of 2021, I wrote an album whilst locked down in the second lockdown here. Uh, it's a concept album. It's called Awake. And it's a little bit about what's happened over the last few years. It's a little bit about me examining my life's journey in music and, and wondering what have I achieved and have I achieved what I really wanted to do when I was 13? And the answer was no, actually. And also a little bit about my mum who got dementia at the start of 2020 and I moved in to look after her and become a primary carer. And sadly, I lost her last year, but I'm sorry. Those two years, thank, yeah. thank you. But those two years were almost the best two years of my life because I got to just make music, do live streams and tell my mum every night that I loved her and she was the best mum in the world. And then it was, then it was now. <laughs> then it's now. <laughs> yes. So you, that club night that you mentioned of the um, upcoming artists, so that's still happening today. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there is there's continually incredible new talent coming through my door, right? Who, you know, obviously I don't really need to look for anyone because I've been here so long, everyone kind of just finds me. Mm -hmm. So my inbox is inundated with amazingly talented artists. And there's a whole new generation coming through. So I, there's artists to look out for. I would say there's a, there's a great, um, young, uh, German Swedish artist called Greta Lovisa, who's just started releasing music, who I think is absolutely fabulous. I mean, there's, there's so many. I, mm. And that's what's exciting, right? For me is like talent, talent never stops. Yes. Enthusiasm never stops. Passion never stops, but opportunity changes, right? So I yes. try and maintain. An, an opportunity for people to be able to do their thing at the best they can so that they have every chance possible. Do you feel with the advent of social media, digital and all those elements, but do you feel that with these elements in play now, that there's more 
people up and coming now compared to maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago when it was the record labels who were more in control and maintaining what was heard through the radios? Well, I don't think the control and maintaining of what's heard through the radios and social media has changed at all. Okay. To be honest, in the okay. grand scheme of things. Okay. However, there is a greater prolifer- proliferation of music. Okay. Uh, you know, the population's growing, more people are making music. I think the social media side of it uh, has served a number of different functions. But the truth is, the statistic of the amount of new music that yes. is uploaded daily to things like Spotify and Amazon is eye-watering. It's in the tens of thousands. I've heard that, yes. Right. Every day. So this is the perennial problem that you're an end user. How on earth are you expected to wade through all of that and find anything you like? And And the problem is, of course, that nobody does. However, there are gatekeepers. Right. And the gatekeepers are the ones who create the playlists on Spotify or, or who curate the, the, the algorithms for, for YouTube and things like that, that kind of pre-select what will get to, you get to hear. Right. So rather than going, I wonder what's being released on Spotify and, and trawling endlessly through it, you just go to new music Friday and you go, yes. okay, this is what Spotify suggests. And this is really cool. I like this because there's, there's never anything that isn't good in its own right there you might not like all the music you might go that's a bit too pop or that's a bit too r&b for me or a bit too heavy metal i don't know but somebody has curated it that far so there are always gatekeepers right whether it's the producers on radio whether it's the editors in television whether it's the playlist curators online um however there are I think a few ways, certainly in the last couple of years, that you can break that mold a little bit. And that's the power of TikTok, right? Because TikTok has managed to create this very aggressively infectious way of presenting 20, 30, 40 second clips that people get stuck just looking at, right? And and the weird thing is that, you know, Many of these clips have no resolution, right? It'll be like, hey, hey, everybody, follow me for secrets on how to change your iPhone to make it more, more what? what, Where's he gone? (laughs) Follow and like for more, right? It's like, no, (laughs) just tell me the answer now, right? But within that, some very intuitively clever creators have worked out how to use that system to make something that, that people keep coming back to and watching again. And there are kind of, you know, there's, there's, there are breakout social media stars because of that. I'm not quite sure how that crosses into the real world though. Right. And I think very much now there are two worlds operating in parallel, right? There are the online stars that never really do anything except be online because they don't need to. They actually make more money and are far more successful and have an easier life just uploading three videos a day than going on tour with a crew and having to fly around the world and, yeah. and all of that, right? Um, so that's on the one side. On the other side, I think there's more music because kids have access to so many different artists that can influence them and help them learn to be better at what they do much younger. So when I was a kid, there weren't really any young singers under... 16 or 17 or maybe maybe older that were amazing that I I think there was Lena Zavaroni over here that we we used to have on television and similarly from music musical point of view there 
maybe you'd see one little guitar genius that studied classical guitar and could play, you know, music of the mountains by Manuel or something on the, on the yeah. nylon guitar. And you'd go, wow, that's really cool. Now you go on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok or wherever. There are literally thousands yeah. and thousands of young singers, 12, 13, 14, who sound better than any singer I've ever heard before who had the pitch, they almost sound like they've been auto-tuned because they've learnt the sound of an auto-tuned voice. They're so perfect. And similarly with guitarists, you see not only lots of young guitarists, but lots of female guitarists that you never saw before who are just rocking out. They're playing Smoke on the Water and they're playing all the Pink Floyd lead solos. I'm not sure that they'll ever join a band, but but they can certainly play in a way that could never be done before. And yeah. I think that's because they have access to to see other people doing it and learn it very, very young and be inspired to do that. So I'm very, I love me a CD. Okay. I love holding the booklet. I love seeing the thank yous. I like seeing the art. For me, it's an energy exchange to the art to say, thank you so much for all your hard work because you guys put in a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of yep. energy. I don't know if you know are aware of these stats, but two years back, CDs had their f- uh, first uh, increase in sales in 21 years. Last year in the UK alone, there were 5.5 million vinyls sold, the be- biggest since 1990. So the physical is making a comeback, which I'm grateful for. So what is your perception of the physical versus the digital uh, consumption of music i don't see it ever going back to physical because i think it's impossible unfortunately uh, i agree with you i mean i'm i'm a little older than you so i, I but uh, the same experience of holding a you know a 12 inch record in a sleeve and having a double gatefold sleeve with an insert with the lyrics on it and you know the, these were works of art like i remember led zeppelin 3 had this little wheel that you could turn on the side and little slots in the front would change pictures and it was like it was so visceral. Alice Cooper had an album called Schools Out that was like yes. a school desk and the bottom could fold out and it would be a desk. And I think, if I remember if it was on that album or it was another one, but it was Alice Cooper, a pair of, of, of pink panties was wrapped around the record when you got it. It's like, this is nuts, right? This, But this yeah. is art. Now, your stats are not wrong. Stats are never wrong. But stats are... Statistics are always interpretable in many different ways, right? So, you know, um, there's, you, you could say 5% of all road accidents are caused by people who fall asleep at the wheel. Therefore, 95% of road accidents are caused by people who are wide awake. Much better to be sleepy, right? Yeah. For example, yeah. bad example, but you, you know what I mean? So I think that the vinyl market particularly is a collector's market. And it, and it's not, um, the consumption of music on mass as we used to have it, because that was the only way you could get it. It's now the consumption of music as a connoisseur, because vinyl is really expensive. It's really expensive to make. There are very few places in the world where you can, um, manufacture vinyl records. I'm not sure that there's even a pressing plant left in the UK. I think everything went to, to Poland and to, into Europe. But if there's more demand, obviously someone will will open a facility to do it. Yeah. But I, it's definitely one of those things where people want, it's like buying a buying a, a coin, right? In a presentation pouch, right? Yeah. The coin has an intrinsic value of its own. It might be um, $5, <clears throat> but you might pay $100 for it because the packaging and the presentation is, is so beautifully put together and it becomes a collector's piece, right? Yeah. So I, I think a lot of vinyl collection is about the experience of, of buying into something that 
as a connoisseur, you want the quality of this this product. You want something that's that carries a, a, an extra value for the collector. And absolutely, if you have a great record player, you want to put it on and hear that first crackle, yeah. and you want to go. CDs, I'm not. I'm in two two minds about because it's it's a different format. It's so much smaller, and even though it's great to look in the booklet, right? It doesn't have quite the weight of presentation that a nice vinyl does. And I don't know anyone who's got a CD player, right? And and I know you can buy them, and every now and then they kind of they turn up. Uh, like in a retro looking thing or something, but ultimately the, it, there's not one in my car. There's not one in my laptop anymore. I, if I have a CD, I have no way of playing it. So I think both CDs and, and vinyl are part of a niche market, but because the market generally is growing, that niche is growing in relation to it. But the online world is one that that's constantly evolving and changing. And I don't think that will ever go away. And I think it will always be the dominant player. I think there'll be a space for both. I'm hoping. <laughs> I, want, I like my well, physical. <laughs> yeah, well, there is. You know, if people yeah. want to buy something, uh, yeah. someone would want to sell it to you, right? It's yeah. like it's it's a standard economic exchange. Oh, yeah. there's people who want this. Well, so Awake as my show is a 17 uh, track album. Yes, I haven't released it yet because to try and release that in a world when most people don't know who I am and what I'm doing seems a bit pointless. So I've kind of worked in reverse. Um, what I've done is I created the show that goes with the music. And I did that as I was creating the music because I knew I wanted it to be a visual as well as an aural experience. And that when yes. you're in the space with me performing this, we have a journey for an hour and 45 minutes. And I wanted to do that to build the awareness and the fan base so that when I decide to release the album, I'm absolutely going to do it in vinyl because it needs to be a it probably a triple album, right? It's going to be expensive, but it will be fabulous and beautiful because there will be people, I'm sure, me included, who feel so connected with the music and this journey that to own the thing that that's an extension of that is really yes. important. Yeah. But then, of course, there'll just be people around the world who who listen to one or two tracks from the show that will be the lead singles and and they'll experience them on YouTube or or on, on Spotify yeah. and, and enjoy just as much that way. Tell us about your creative process. Okay. So from a music point of view, I be this is going to sound really kind of corny and, mm -hmm. and, and pseudo spiritual in some weird way. But I actually believe that, uh, that we might live in an eternal present. Yes. That there is no past. There's no future. Mm -hmm. Everything that ever has been and everything that ever can be and every variation thereof is all happening at the same time. Okay. And what we call the present is us moving through this vast expanse of, of we'll call it life, right? Or reality of what we perceive to be reality. It A little like bit like quantum on, physics. Sorry. It sounds like, yes. Quantum, I, yeah. Yeah. I'm a big quantum physics yeah. fan, armchair. But if you imagine you take, um, you know, you know, those kind of books, where's Wally? Have you ever seen those? those yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So imagine you've got a giant where's Wally on the wall uh, that represents everything that could ever be, right? And it's it's covered up except for a tiny little square slit that you can move in any direction, right? So that little tiny square slit is what we consider the present. And as we make decisions and move through life, we move that slit in any direction, right? It can be up, down, left or right. Uh, and it reveals a new bit of reality. And But we're always moving away from the bit that we've just been in, right? And, and it reveals something else that's happening. I know that sounds yeah, so, no, 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 but no, within, not at all. <laughs> but within this concept, 
if everything that's ever been and everything that's ever going to be ha- is being mm. right now, that means every song has been written. Every book has been written. Every film has been made, right? Everything's yeah. happened, right? I think when you use stream of consciousness and you disconnect yourself from overthinking and you allow what we term inspiration to take hold, yes, what's really happening is we are connecting with this vast infinite reality yes. and, and we're bringing things back that are already there, yes. right? I think as a creator, in order to write the best song in the world, I've got to go looking for the best song that's ever been written. And my instinct is to follow that journey, to pull these parts back that now recreate this song that's already out there. Because honestly, sometimes I finish writing something and go, well, did I write that? And and I've heard other people say that. Every person I've interviewed for this podcast have said the same thing that you've just said. Yes. <laughs> yes. Did I write that? It, it yeah. feels like it wrote itself. Yes. Right. In <laughs> fact, I have a great friend called Ilona, who's an amazing singer and writer. And we've written a ton of stuff together. Yeah. And when we're working together, we often have a laugh and go, that song just wrote itself. <laughs> but the truth is, once you are able to really channel that conscious stream of consciousness and mm-hmm. that inspiration, at, at a, the highest level and you're bringing back the good stuff because other people do it. We all do it, but some people don't understand instinctively how far they should look. So they just find the first thing, right? Yes. They find the, the, the windfall apples that are not that good do because that. even the, even the songs that aren't that good have already been written. They're yeah. bringing back the ones that aren't that good. And you go, Oh yeah, that's all right. Right. So <laughs> I think that, so the, the, the challenge for all creators is how do you bring the magical, amazing stuff and 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 deliver it to the world in this environment, right? And then, of course, you get into this weird circle of: Are you taking from your other self what your other self has already written? To I don't know. It's, you yeah, don't want to yeah. go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. You'll go crazy. It is a rabbit hole. <laughs> but, I love this question. The recipients of this question generally do not, because I do realize if I had to <laughs> ask you this question in two minutes, two days, two hours, two weeks, this answer would be different every single time I ask this because. There are thousands of them. But if you had to put on your top five go-to songs by other artists, as <laughs> soon as we finish this conversation, what would those five songs be? Okay. Well, I would definitely go and put Imagine on by John Lennon. Okay. I love that song. I would definitely go and put Life on Mars by David Bowie. My mum loved that. I love that. It's a long one, but I would go and put Supper's Ready by Genesis, which was okay. on the Foxtrot album. It's about 20 minutes long. It's It was a, a life-changing piece of music for me. Uh, that's three. Um, I think uh, Let It Be is a song that, that I not only love so much, but I have played probably more than any other song because there's something about that song, when I sing it, connects me with the universe in in, in a way that, allows me to put my own spin on the, the on the presentation of the song but it's such a brilliantly perfectly written song and uh the last song well i would probably say cole porter and there's a song called oh what's the title birds do it bees do it even uh, yes. educated please do it let's do it let's fall in love and what i love about that song and what it represents for me as a writer is someone who is uh intrinsically understands the power of words and vocabulary and a perfect rhyme. Because when you, when you sing a perfect rhyme, it has a power to the listener that, that you can't quite quantify. So very often people might write a song and they'll have one line that ends in, uh, I love to see you in my dreams. And then the next line right end in, uh, cause you, uh, cause you'll know what that will mean. 
dreams and mean don't rhyme because one's plural and one isn't, right? So they're close. Yes. However, you should make them both plural. So, you know, I'd love to see you in my dreams because you know what that means. Yes. Suddenly, that is a really powerful couplet, much yes. more powerful, right? Or you go, I always see you in my dream. I think you know what I mean. You make them both singular. Very powerful, right? These little techniques as a songwriter that I've, I've come to understand from listening to the great songwriters of the last hundred years are kind of epitomized by Cole Porter as a lyricist who's, who, who's very cleverly able to talk about social commentary, about, about life, but also make the song super catchy, but perfectly written. So those are my five. They'll be different next week, of course. Yes. <laughs> so the podcast is listened to throughout the world. So as a final message to the listening audience, what would you like to say? Well, first of all, I'd like to say um, my website is uh, TonyMoreMusic.com. Go and join me there. There will be a sign up for a mailing list. I'd love to be able to send you uh, stuff. I won't bombard you. But my passion right now is my show called Awake. Uh, it's a one man show. And it's quite a unique thing because it's the story of my life a little bit. It has a flavor of everything that I love. So it's all original, but it's a bit Pink Floydy. It's a bit Genesis. It's a bit Alice Cooper. It's a bit War of the Worlds, all of these things. Um, and my plan is to take it to the world. I've done two years of residencies in London where I've built, crafted the show. I'm about to take it on the road and do some select dates and eventually take it to Las Vegas for a while. I'm working on that plan, but it will come somewhere near you in the world. So find uh, the awake awake music.info and be a part of that journey because i would love to, to for as many people to experience this as they can 